Good afternoon. It is a blessing to be here today. Very thankful to have visitors with us, encouraged by your presence. Thankfully, this is hopefully one of the, the last hotter days as we get into fall, um, but I appreciate everybody bearing through that together. If your Bibles aren't already open to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, please turn them there with me now. Human morality is often pictured as an internal struggle between two opposing forces. You've probably seen depicted in in cartoons many times, uh, people with their shoulder angel and shoulder demon. Uh, And even among other cultures, there's an old Native American story of two wolves at war within somebody, and we have to starve out the the, uh, bad wolf and, and feed the good wolf. Uh, Plato, in fact, used the illustration of two horses being driven by a charioteer, one wild and the other noble and tame. He called those horses passion and reason. And so this concept of kind of two opposing forces, passion and reason, um, our angel and our demon are are things that, that we are familiar with. But as we come to the scripture, that's primarily expressed to us by talking about the flesh and the spirit. In fact, months back when we studied Romans 8, we saw that contrast between flesh and spirit. And here in Galatians 5, we see that contrast as well. But it's, it's actually not just in Galatians chapter 5. Really, the, the entire book of Galatians shows us this contrast between flesh and spirit. Paul's main thesis is that we are no longer, longer under the fleshly ordinances of the law, but rather uh, led by the Spirit under the new law, or new covenant. If you look back in chapter 3, Galatians 3, verse 2 and 3, Paul tells the brethren here, Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so, all the way back in chapter 3, he's already showing us this contrast and showing that while the law was one of fleshly ordinances, um, that under the new covenant, we are to be led by the Spirit. Um, And by the time we get to chapter 5, Paul is talking about how this rule of God's Spirit within our lives should manifest itself in our conduct from day to day. Look look in chapter 5 and verse 13. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. They're free from the old law, but this is not a freedom for the flesh. This is a freedom from the flesh. Uh, And so he urges them not to go back to the flesh, but rather to live by the Spirit, to replace the governance of our flesh with a deeper, more effective governance of the Spirit. In chapter 5 and verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The thou shalls of the Spirit are are going to uh, naturally cover Um, the thou shall nots of the old law. If we allow the Spirit to guide us for walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, as he enumerates in verse 22 and 23, uh, then it is going to naturally drive out the works of the flesh enumerated here as well. 
But the important thing that I want us to ask ourselves today as we consider the struggle between flesh and spirit is, am I being led by the spirit or am I being led by the flesh? And when we talk about spirit here, we're not just talking about my spirit and my flesh. We're, we're talking about God's spirit and its work among us. Are we being led by God's spirit? And if so, how does that show itself in our life? As we look into the mirror of God's word, do we see the fruits of the spirit? And if God's spirit is not at work within our lives, then why should we want to surrender our flesh? Why should we want to crucify our flesh and allow God's spirit to rule our life instead? I think it would be helpful to start by talking about why the flesh is insufficient, how the flesh fails us in a number of areas that Paul's going to talk about here in the book of Galatians. First of all, the flesh is an ineffective pathway to unity. In fact, in this portion of Galatians, uh, unity or the lack thereof is a major focus of what Paul's talking about in chapter 5. Um, these deeds of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit are not characteristics that we possess or practice all on our own. They're, in fact, characteristics that we practice in relationship to others in a one-another context. Look in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13 again. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see that context there? Here, not uh, giving freedom to the flesh, not doing what the flesh desires, they're rather to walk in love towards one another. If they do walk in the flesh, it's going to end in them biting and devouring one another. But the solution is that they walk by the Spirit. And as we look at the deeds of the flesh, notice what the predominant focus of these works of the flesh are. Read with me in verse 19 through 21. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, I think when, when I normally thought about the works of the flesh, normally I think about some of the things early in that list or late in that list that are indulging of fleshly appetites uh, and bodily urges, sexual immorality, uh, drunkenness. But you notice right in the middle Eight out of these 15 things, over half of these things, have to do with our relationship with our fellow man, with how we treat one another, with getting along with one another, or in fact, not getting along with one another in this case. And so when we think about the works of the flesh, these are not just fulfillment of our bodily urges, really any exercise of our own earthly will and violation of God's will is a work of the flesh. And you see this context continue in verse 25 and 26. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
as Paul talks about this, his primary focus to the Galatians is if you're walking in the flesh, that's going to produce biting and devouring one another, envying one another, provoking one another. That's not what God's spirit produces. And so part of the reason that we need to get rid of the flesh, that we need to crucify the flesh, is because it is not going to bring about the kind of relationships, the kind of unity that God desires among us. We see the same problem in the book 1 Corinthians among the brethren there in chapter 3 and verse 3. And notice what Paul says to them. He says, For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Here, there's strife, there's jealousy among them. They're not getting along. What does Paul say that shows? It shows they're acting like mere men. I think that phrase is interesting. Brethren, we can't act like mere men. Uh, God has called us to living in a way that is not natural, that is not normal for the, the earthly man, for the flesh. And when we are walking by the flesh, it ends in jealousy and strife and division. It's only walking by the Spirit that we're going to be able to find that unity. God has called us to something that is not natural, but that is supernatural. God has called us to a type of unity and how we treat one another and how we work together that only he can accomplish among us. Because rather than the flesh is selfish. The flesh tells us that it's okay to look out for number one. It's okay to focus on making sure that my needs are met first. It's okay to treat others the way that they treat me or the way that I feel like they deserve to be treated. And when we do that, it doesn't result in the type of unity that God desires for his people. It doesn't reflect the character of God. As long as we are walking according to the flesh, we are going to be walking in a thousand different directions. Uh, I'm going to do what seems right to me, what feels right to me, what makes me feel fulfilled. And that is never going to align perfectly with what's going to help you, right? If we want this type of unity, we cannot be living after the flesh. We cannot be walking by the flesh. We see this in society, in our world, in the news, in politics, how divided people are. Brethren, that should not be the way God's people are. And if it is, it's showing that we are walking like mere men that we are walking after the flesh. But secondly, the flesh is an unstable foundation for virtue. The flesh tells us that virtue is good and commendable as long as it serves our purposes. But when virtue is inconvenient, when it's inefficient, uh, ineffective in accomplishing what we want to accomplish, then other tactics can be employed. I think we see this most readily in how the flesh defines love. The flesh defines love in self-serving and self-fulfilling ways. Notice Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 46 and 47, how he talks about how mere men love. He says in Matthew 5, 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That's the way the world loves. They can love like that. You're called to something higher, something better. The flesh only loves that which is lovely, which deserves or inspires love. 
To the flesh, love is not a choice but a feeling. It's something we fall in or fall out of. And where there's no feeling of love, where natural affection has been quenched by another's actions or attitudes, there's no basis for acting in a loving way. Fleshly love is only hospitable when we would enjoy having people in our home. Fleshly love is only friendly to those whom we'd enjoy having as our friends. Fleshly love is only generous to those who will be appreciative and those who might seek to serve us in return. And just as fleshly love is fickle, uh, when patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control are based on the flesh, uh, that is not going to remain constant. It's not going to be a stable foundation. We'll, we'll be patient as long as we deem that it's reasonable to be patient. We'll be kind and gentle as long as it's accomplishing what we want it to accomplish in our relationships. We'll be faithful as long as our needs are being met. The flesh is not a firm foundation for the kind of virtue that God desires for us to possess. And thirdly, the flesh is an empty hope for fulfillment. When it comes to the fruit of joy and peace that we're talking about here in Galatians chapter 5, the flesh doesn't even define those as virtues. Those are feelings. Those are experiences. They are simply a product of our circumstances. And we can pursue joy and peace, but we can't choose joy and peace. Um, they can be experienced, but they can't be lived. And, and while we as a society recognize that we have a right to the pursuit of happiness, uh, we recognize that very often it's not attainable. Uh, very often it's going to be fleeting and out of our grasp. We, we can't truly attain to joy. Uh, it's based simply on our circumstances. Notice in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8, Chapter 6 and verse 8, Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We can sow the seeds of the flesh all day long, and we, we can wait for the crop to come up, but when it comes up, it only brings corruption. The flesh is not designed to fulfill us. It's not designed to last. It cannot bring true joy. In Matthew chapter 6, again in the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus says in verse 19 and 20, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It doesn't matter how many earthly treasures and enjoyments we have. In fact, the more riches we have, uh, the more that we have to lose, the more that we have to worry about, about our safety and, and security, the more that, that we have to, to dust and to clean, the more that we have to watch corrode in front of us. The things of this earth do not last. And the more that we compile them, the more that we seek fulfillment from them, the more that we're going to find ourselves being discouraged that they didn't bring the kind of fulfillment that, that they promised. Sowing to the flesh brings corruption. If there's anybody who recognized this lesson, it was the writer of Ecclesiastes. 
Remember his conclusion, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is grasping after the wind. He says in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and in verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. You know, uh, things that we see can bring us great enjoyment, right? The things that we hear can bring us great enjoyment, but that enjoyment is fleeting. It doesn't last. It's not going to fill us up. Any of our five senses, any of the fleshly things that we enjoy are ultimately not going to last. They're momentary. They're fleeting. You know, if, if you eat a chocolate cake, <laughs> that chocolate cake might, might be very enjoyable, uh, in the moment, but once you're done with it, you know, maybe you'll just have a stomach ache and a guilty conscience and some dishes to clean, right? It, it was enjoyable, but it doesn't last. And so are all things of the flesh. The more we indulge the flesh, the more it is going to leave us empty and unfulfilled and disappointed and discouraged. If that's where we're seeking to find true fulfillment, the seeds of the flesh are going to simply bring corruption. We talked about this passage in Jeremiah 2 a few weeks back in our uh, Sunday Bible class. Um, remember, Jeremiah, uh, speaking for the Lord here, says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I think in context that might primarily apply to idolatry. These idols aren't fulfilling them, but I think it really applies to any sins of the flesh. Um, here, God is the fountain of living waters, a, a source of life that never runs dry. And yet, all other promises of fulfillment in this world, they're, they're cisterns. They have a limited capacity, and not only that, they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. We can keep pouring water in it, try to fill it up, try to get fulfillment, and it's just going to leak out the other side. That's the flesh. And the more that we put water in it, the more that we sow to it, the more it's going to leave us disappointed and empty. So what's the answer? Obviously, the flesh cannot unite us. The flesh cannot be a firm foundation for virtue. The flesh cannot fulfill us. What's the solution? The solution, as Galatians 5 shows us, is God's spirit, his work among us. And you notice here, it talks about the works of the flesh, but then he doesn't go on to talk about the works of the spirit, right? He talks about the fruit of the spirit. Why, why, why does he transition from talking about works to talking about fruit? I think uh, the commentator William Barclay uh, hits on a helpful point here. He says, a work is something which a man produces for himself. A fruit is something which is produced by a power which he himself does not possess. When we see the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, the entire point here is that this is what God can produce among us. We can't produce unity. We can't produce virtue. We can't produce fulfillment, but God can. And what we need is his spirit dwelling within us, his work among us. 
And so when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, we see that the Spirit is an irreplaceable pattern for unity. While the flesh tears us apart, leaves us biting and devouring one another, when we walk by the Spirit, we can truly be bound together. Notice another passage in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Does that language sound a little bit familiar? Here he's talking about us walking worthy of our calling, walking in unity. How? Well, he talks about gentleness and patience, and love. Sounds a lot like Galatians 5, doesn't it? And here, the foundation of our unity, he describes this as maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This isn't a unity that we manufacture, that that we create. This is a unity that God has already created. We maintain the unity that he designed, that is inherent in the fact that as he goes on in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. You know, does your body ever have a hard time getting along with itself? Maybe if you have some autoimmune disease, some problem, you have a struggle with that. But generally speaking, you know, do do, do your hands, uh, you know, get in arguments with one another and have a hard time getting along? Do, do Do your feet you know, not agree with your head on on where they want to go, maybe you're clumsy. Uh, Well, no. No, our our body naturally works together uh, inherent in the fact that there is one spirit dwelling in this one body, right? That's how the body of Christ is intended to be. And the problem comes when it's no longer the one spirit that's guiding us, when we're each walking by our own flesh and our own preferences and our own desires and what we think is best. That's where we're going to be going in a hundred different directions. It's when we all submit to the one spirit that we find the type of unity that God designed. Brethren, where there is division, where there is strife and disputes, dissensions, factions, somebody, maybe everybody, is not walking by the spirit. Somebody is walking by the flesh. Because the Spirit doesn't divide us. The flesh is what divides us, what causes us to bite and devour one another. Notice in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying for the unity of his people, how he describes that unity. John 17, starting in verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. What kind of unity is Jesus praying for here? 
He describes it as, as a unity where God is in us and we are in God, a unity that testifies to God's presence among us. When we're unified like that, the world is going to believe that God did send Jesus. Why? Because that kind of unity isn't accomplished by the flesh. Because it can't just be accomplished by us taking a vote and deciding what we think is best. No, that kind of unity comes from the Lord. And so, brethren, where we struggle with the vision, we need to recognize that that, that's our flesh coming to the surface. We need to rather submit to the Spirit and have the kind of unity that only God can accomplish among us. Any attempt at unity that looks to the flesh for strength or guidance is ultimately doomed to fail. If we're unified just because we happen to all think the same way about this issue, uh, just because we, we happen to all come from common perspective or background and that's what unites us, that, that is going to fail. What has to bind us together is a common submission to God's spirit. It is his unity. The unity of the spirit, uh, of the one body, the one spirit that he has created. And along with that, the Spirit is an unwavering foundation for virtue. The Spirit calls us to a higher standard, not just to a law of fleshly ordinances, but a law of love, the law of Christ. Notice back in the Sermon on the Mount, we referenced this passage briefly earlier. But Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 is calling us to a higher standard. He says our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees back in, in verse 20. Well, how? Notice how he describes the type of love we need to have. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes all, his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is not the world's standard of love. This is not us living like mere men. No, this is us being called to a higher standard, a higher standard that God himself has said. We are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. We are to treat others as our heavenly Father treats others. That's the standard. And that doesn't change based on how I'm being treated. That doesn't change based on what I'm experiencing or how I feel in the moment. God's character stays the same. It doesn't waver. That must be our foundation. Christ calls us to love the unlovable, to be kind to the unkind, to be gentle to the hot-tempered, to seek peace with those who seek our harm. To be patient with those who continuously grate on our nerves. The fruits of the Spirit are not dependent on how I'm being treated, how worthy or unworthy of kindness I think others are, or how I happen to feel at the moment. They are grounded in the character of God himself. We love not because others deserve love, but because God is love. We rejoice, not because our experiences and conditions in this life are always exactly what we want them to be, but because God's 
relationship with us is an everlasting source of joy. We pursue peace, not because others are easy to get along with, but because God is a God of peace. We're patient because God is patient, kind because God is kind, good because God is good, faithful because God is faithful, self-controlled because this flesh is not ruling our, our passions, uh, but rather God is the one in control of our lives. Look back in Ephesians chapter 4. We talked about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace here in Ephesians 4. Notice at the very end of this chapter, as he talks about putting off the old man, putting on the new man, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, as he gets to the end of Ephesians chapter 4, he says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's the standard? Our heavenly father. We're to be imitators of our father. People are to see our father living in us. That's the standard. That type of character comes from a father who has given us birth as his spiritual children, from a spirit that dwells within us, from Christ who walked on this earth and showed us how to live that kind of life. But thirdly, the fruit of the spirit is an everlasting source of fulfillment. While our flesh is a broken cistern that's never going to be filled up, God himself is the fountain of living waters. The joy that God gives us is not dependent on our earthly circumstances. Uh, You see Paul's words in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul is writing that while he is locked up in a Roman prison. How can he tell them to rejoice always? He says rejoice in the Lord always. Paul's circumstances were often far from what he would want them to be. They were often difficult. Uh, You can read about that in in 2 Corinthians. Um, All the suffering that he went through. But where was his joy? It was in the Lord, and the Lord didn't change. His relationship with the Lord remained constant. We can also have the kind of peace that surpasses understanding. Later on in the same chapter, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Where does that peace come from? From God. And Paul doesn't just tell us not to be anxious, not to worry. He tells us how. By approaching God in prayer, by handing things over to him. That is an unearthly kind of peace. That is a supernatural peace and joy that we have. And that testifies to God at work among us. I think about uh, the words uh, of the song, It is well with my soul. And uh, one of the verses says, Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. That doesn't mean it's well with my earthly circumstances. That doesn't mean everything is going the way that I want it to go. But I know 
that God, who is good and loving and cares for me as his child, is in control. And so I don't have to fear whatever he allows me to go through, though it may seem difficult, though it may seem tragic, I know he's in control. And his plan sees much further than my vantage point can see. Sees even into eternity. That's where my peace and my joy come from. The flesh can't produce that. And so what do you see as you look at your life? As you look at how you get along and treat other people, as you look at your virtue and character, as you look at your joy and peace or or lack thereof, are you walking by the Spirit? Or would you say you're walking by the flesh? If you don't see the fruit of the Spirit at work in your life the way that it should be, then maybe your flesh needs to be crucified. In Galatians chapter 5, notice what we read in verse 24. Galatians 5 verse 24, he says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Christ, then you cannot live by the flesh. You buried your flesh in the waters of baptism, not to be dug back up. You surrendered your life to the Lord. Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, yes, we live in the flesh. We have earthly bodies. But that's not what's directing our life anymore. God is directing our life. He is bearing his fruit within us. If you don't see that in your life, then won't you surrender to him today? God has given you the opportunity that your life can be transformed. You can't accomplish that on your own, but you can accomplish it with him by his grace. If you need to surrender your life to the Lord, allow Jesus to bury your old man of sin and guilt in the waters of baptism by the power of the resurrection, by the grace of God, you can be raised to live a new life, no longer for yourself, but him who loved you and died on your behalf. If you haven't done that, won't you do that today? And if you have done that, but you're not living it, won't you repent? Won't you turn to him? As we talked about in our class earlier, don't rend your garments, but rend your heart. Bring a contrite and broken heart to the Lord, and he, with great joy and love, will receive you unto himself. He wants to be at work in your life. He wants to transform you. Will you let him? If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, that's why we're here. If you need to confess some public sin before these brethren to ask for our prayers and support in some area, if you need to surrender your life to the Lord for the first time, won't you let it be known by coming forward as we stand and sing together?